This is a statement recounted by Father Richard Lawrence in an oral history of the Holy Week uprising in Baltimore in 1968. Father Lawrence was a white activist priest and recalled this statement made to him by one of his black parishioners at the time of the unrest. Father, you don't understand. I know you've been with the demonstrations and all that sort of thing, but you were born white and you really can't totally understand. I mean, I've done the civil rights thing too. You know it. I've been there. I've been in the marches. I've been in the rallies. You name it. Nobody's listening. Murdering Dr. King was just the last straw that nobody's listening. We can go on demonstrating as long as we want. Nobody will listen. I don't know what to try next. But maybe blood flowing in the streets is what it takes. Maybe some of his blood with some of my blood flows in the streets. Then maybe the man will listen. Maybe not. But I've got nothing else left to try. I don't care if I get killed. I've got two kids and I'm not going to have them come up in the world I came up in. I'm just not going to have it. Comrades and friends, uh, this is Rob hosting your Highlands Bunker podcast. I'm in the Shadow Rockford Tower waging an audio guerrilla war against the Delaware Way elites. Super producer Carl is super producing from a remote location still. Uh, today's conversation is one I've been very excited uh, to have, not only because of its immediate relevance, uh, but also because of the stature of our two guests. Uh, joining us is Professor Peter B. Levy. He's a professor of history at York College in Pennsylvania. Uh, he's the author of over a dozen books, uh, including the one we'll be discussing today, The Great Uprising, Race Riots in Urban America During the 1960s. Professor Levy, uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Uh, our other guest is a veteran of the bunker, uh, returning champion, Professor Yasser Payne. Professor Payne is a sociologist and professor of Africana Studies at the University of Delaware. He is best known for his application of participatory action research in majority black and brown urban neighborhoods called Street Par. Uh, we welcome back Professor Payne. Thanks for coming back. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Uh, so, Professor Levy, uh, your book is excellent. Um, I must admit it was difficult for me um, to go through it and, uh, because I feel like we're living it in real time again. Uh, I've been out in the streets twice in the last 10 days, and I'll go back out tomorrow. So history, uh, the history here is especially poignant. Uh, but before we fast forward to the present, uh, let's circle back to the historical account. Uh, your book synthesizes historical context uh, for the street actions of the 60s and early 70s, but it also creates a, a new, broader framework in which to situate these actions. Uh, can you explain the thesis of your book and how these events can be understood far more accurately uh, within this perspective and how they can all be viewed sort of collectively as the Great Uprising? Well, the thesis is part just in that title, The Great Uprising. You know, the, the notion that first rejecting the concept that these were just riots and that they were disconnected, spontaneous, apolitical events, which, you know, at the time was somewhat prominent among sociologists, uh, that these were disorders which lacked political con uh, content to them. Um, two or three other things I would say is I use that term great uprising because I wanted to convey a sense of the breadth of them, both chronologically and geographically. So the book 
actually examines uh, revolts in three separate cities, a large city, Baltimore in 1968, a medium, a small city, Cambridge, which is on the eastern shore of Maryland, which had it in 63, 64, and allegedly again in 67. And then also uh, in York, where I teach in 1969. Uh, because I, I wanted to have us move away from the sense that these revolts only take place in big cities, some with, some with ghettos large enough to have their own names, like the Harlem riots or the Watts riots. Um, and though you ask me to comment on the book, I find it interesting that one of the things we see happening now is how widespread uh, the protests are today. Um, so, and the only other kind of major interventions I was trying to make was to say that what we do is we want to really, I wanted to look at these, these uprisings, not to just to look at the uprisings themselves. I sought to do that and understand what was taking place. But because um, what we really wanted to do was understand their causes. We really, we, it gives us an opportunity to think about why people rose up. And that's what's really so scary today because uh, many of the causes that caused the revolts of the 60s went unresolved. And I think we're just seeing the cumulative impact of that today. So that quote you read at the beginning, I remember when I read it, uh, it's just, I probably read it around 2015 when the Freddie Gray uh, uprising was taking place. And I've heard a lot of people say the same things. Basically, they don't want their kids. They don't want their sons and daughters to have the same experience. And I'll admit I'm somewhat of a wussy because maybe I'm like a year away from that most dangerous, um, but over 65 crowd. And I have a grandchild in the way, and, I, and I've been scared to go out in the protests. But, you know, that's, you know, a little bit, the advantage I have, it's most, much, much, much less likely that, you know, my sons or my kids are going to be brutalized by police. So I've been trying to participate as I can from the sidelines, uh, at least until my grandchild's born and I can kind of hold them at least one time. That's what my kids tell me. Yeah, I, I mean, people have been making that um, that decision for themselves. I know activists and organizers here who have, uh, you know, their health isn't great. Um, so they've made a decision to stay in or they're taking care of elderly family members. So they would be out, but they have to stay in. But even in that situation that we've all sort of coming out of this quarantine, we still see sort of massive crowds across the country, um, which is at least, um, you know, People are feeling like they have a reason to come out now that's not a selfish reason. Uh, and I think that that's at least somewhat optimistic, even though I'm not an optimistic person. <laughs> um, I, I want to quote the book and then ask Professor Payne a question uh, because I want to kind of reflect on things that are happening today. So uh, you say in the book, this is page 120, white backlash and the collapse of the New Deal coalition did not appear in response to radicalization of the civil rights movement embolized by the urban revolts. On the contrary, whites displayed their resistance to fundamentally altering the racial status quo long before 1968. Put somewhat differently, just as the case of Freddie Gray uprising, the revolts of the 1960s were epilogues, not prologues, conventional perception notwithstanding. Um, Professor Payne, um, you know, can you reflect on sort of what the status quo looks like and you know, sort of the, the things that you've been documenting for for over 10 years now in, in Wilmington, especially. Yeah, interestingly enough, um, in the 1960s, you're particularly in the social sciences, you're having there are a number of radical for the social sciences, 
radical theories, particularly around structural arrangements, one of which is a very popular theory by the name of structural violence, right? So, and, and, and also critical race theory would come some years later, but, 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 but for the most part, these radical theories are all arguing the same thing. Right, that 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 you have systems and institutions that are targeting a bottom caste. Right, so for you and I to enjoy our privilege, there must be a bottom caste in place. Right, so it's interesting that you read that quote, right? Because I have a former student who's now a faculty member at Emory University, and he was just on CNN the other day because he just came out with a book on policing as well. And he said something very interesting regarding, he's an historian, and he said something very interesting regarding um, the quote that you, just, that you just said, right? So he says, he says, he says, um, history tells us one thing about white liberals um, and, and resistance, particularly as related to civil rights uh, issues in, in black America, right? And history tells us that they will disappoint us. Right. Let's let's. And he says, and he ends, and he ends his statement by saying, "Let's hope that history doesn't repeat itself now." Right? Because obviously you have um, um, lots of folk, but white folk and other folk joining in with regards to the protests. Uh, 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 let me just let me just also add this. Right. So critical race theory, Derek Bell's critical race theory, and critical race theory is also coming out. Right. There's lots of arguments, particularly around critical legal scholars in the 1960s. Right. They are raceless with their argument. Right? They are simply Marxist and class-based, which, which creates a response by, by, by primarily black scholars at that time, right? To racialize this argument around structural violence, right? It, we, we have to get more into a much more in-depth conversation or discussion around, around power, and it has to go beyond the class space, right? But what they began to argue at the end of the day was entrance convergence theory, right? So, um, you begin to see how liberal white folk are until it's, you know, this is what Derek Bell said, who was the founder of CRT, CRRT, or critical race theory, right? He said, you'll see how liberal white folk are. They're, they're liberal until it's time for the kids from the projects to go to school with their children, right? So my, my, my whole point is I'm trying to complicate this whole argument around the white progressive and the white liberal, right? Uh, 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 um, um, it's always been a very interesting relationship between Black America and or other marginalized groups, right? And, pro and white progressives, right? And, 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 and in this day and time, I think it's very possible for those two groups to work together, low-income Black communities and white progressives, but it begins with a deep and honest conversation, right? About, about the historical context, and what it actually means for us to move forward in a meaningful way, right? So, so, so that, means my, that means my definition of justice and fairness also has to be included in the analysis. My, 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 my definition of what it means to work cooperatively also has to be honored in this process, right? And you're hearing that now in the protests, right? And, and I like the younger generation that's speaking back to white progressives. Forget Donald Trump right now. Forget him right now, right? We can put him in the other room right now, right? And I'm, and I, and I'm so happy that my younger white students and, and, and younger white people on TV are speaking much more openly and honestly to their, to their white, oftentimes liberal leadership, right? And, and or stakeholders in their communities. And that's what we need our white stakeholders and allies to do, right? Do the work in your community. Right, get, right, right, and just as I do the work in my community, don't mean we can't cross-pollinate, but at the end of the day, it begins where we're at, and it begins with 
with, with deep, honest conversations. Yeah, when you speak about um, looking at things as they are and being honest and not sort of turning a blind eye or ignoring or, or painting a narrative, I, I, I noted several, several historical things that uh, Professor Levy writes about uh, that are right in, this, right in this area, like people not really taking an honest look at what's happening, um, and there's an illusion of progress. So concession, concessions are made over time, and they're heralded as, quote, progress, but these are wholly insufficient to address uh, entrenched institutional and structural barriers that are in place. Uh, the liberal New Deal coalition is not a th was not a threat to white supremacy. Um, this, we saw this very clearly in, in the first example uh, in the book in, in, in Cambridge. Um, you know, they have one ward, one all-black ward, uh, so historically, you know, they have uh, some representation, and they're even touted as, you know, the, a place that had a lot of progress, and, and, and uh, Professor Levy can probably speak to some of the historical things around, around that sort of illusion or that narrative. Yeah, when, as, as, as soon as you started saying what you were saying, that, you know, the two best examples I was thinking of is you know, Cambridge actually had this big billboard that they had as you approached the city, and it said, Cambridge is a city making progress. Um, but, you know, it assumed segregation. And it assumed particularly residential segregation. You know that was that was because then that also impacted even if you, even if you desegregated the schools, it meant that the white schools were going to remain separate. And it also entrenched the uh, whites who made up about two thirds of the population, and later on only about uh, today about forty percent of the population. It would entrench them as the political leaders. Um, and the person who spoke most powerfully against this was Gloria Richardson, who's this kind of unknown person, mentor to you know, many black activists, including Stokely Carmichael and A. Trap Brown, who when given the opportunity to vote, and it's a little complicated, but vote on a city ordinance to desegregate the lunch counters, um, urged blacks to boycott that election on the grounds that these are human rights. And you, you can't just have the white majority decide to give blacks some human rights and, and, and take away others. These are just rights that you should enjoy as inalienable rights. And the vast majority of liberals, whites, and to a certain degree, moderate blacks, the NAACP in particular, uh, were just confounded by this. They, uh, one, one uh, I think it was Life Magazine, called her the Dragon Lady. And then they hadn't watched Game of Thrones yet, so that wasn't a positive mm -hmm. reference. Um, and uh, there was a very gendered view of her, in fact. She must be hysterical. She was a middle-aged woman. She, uh, she, uh, there was no way for people to understand that. And, and only, I think, years later did people realize the power of that. And it, it also struck me in looking at Baltimore, because that was one of the other cities I looked at, um, the Community Human Relations Council, the City and State Human Relations Council, would have these annual uh, reports they issued. And every year they would talk about progress. First black sergeant, first black judge, first this, you know, now we got 10 people working at the post office. And I'm saying, well, look, Baltimore's approaching a black majority and they, they're getting their very first town councilman. Uh, they are still as much residential segregation in Baltimore as there was anywhere in the country. So their heroes like Frank Robinson couldn't buy a home in Roland Park. And this is in 1967, 68, after he's won the Triple Crown. Uh, so there is this illusion, I think, as you put it, of, of, of progress. And in some ways, particularly as we go north, 
um, and look at the civil rights movement, I think that illusion of liberalism is more important than even in the South. Because in the South, you know, they were just outright defending defending segregation and white supremacy. Uh, Northerners always had this sense, well, we fought against slavery. No, they fought against the expansion of slavery. And in a brief moment in history, the radicals were able to implement some radical reforms. But within 12 years, the North retreated from that. You know, people forget that the court that ruled in Plessy versus Ferguson was made up of Northern judges, that the Supreme Court justice was a, was a, was a, was a Bostonian. Mm. Um, and, and I think that's one of the problems. Um, I think I, I, I agree with Dr. Payne that there's this, there is possibility for coalition. And I particularly see with young people. Um, uh, but I, I think that's built upon the fact that there's so many strong black voices that are being here, that are being heard right now. Um, you know, vo voices whose names we do not know. And, and to me, that's, that's just absolutely wonderful. Um, it, it, it just, it, it speaks to the potential of what's taking place in the streets right now. Yeah. One of the, one of the ways that, um, we've always talked about even, even before this, but just building some sort of leftist coalition, um, uh, was, was labor, um, and jobs and, uh, professor Payne's project has discovered just staggering unemployment figures that would be impossible without structural impediments. So there are, in other words, there's natural forces could not, um, could not create situations where you know men of a certain age cohort in a certain area are nearly entirely unemployed that's you know the natural forces would not um would not give us a situation like that i, I would like maybe um dr payne to uh just kind of go over some of those some of that some of that data that that indicates um those discrepancies, but also sort of trying to focus on jobs and labor um, and, and maybe some a resurgence of labor. And then we can get into um, some of the historical examples. I know um, there was the, the Phillips canning and a lot of these uh, places in the 60s and 70s still had some uh, manufacturing or industrial. Um, and although they were unionized, again, there was an illusion of solidarity that really didn't uh, at, at, at the at the factory floor wasn't there. So, um, yeah, Professor Payne. Yeah, so I, I would say the first, and before I get into the the weeds a little bit in terms of the numbers and regarding employment and all of that, but let me just say this, critical race theory, structural violence theory, Marxist theory, other theories um, ultimately argue, um, right, that a racial caste system, that's Michelle Alexander's language, a racial caste or a bottom caste is required so that the masses can enjoy their privilege, right? So that's a fundamental premise, right? That I would even argue most liberals don't understand, right? So meaning what, meaning what, meaning, meaning, meaning the privilege, right? The, uh, uh, the wealth, the privilege is directly tied to the poverty. You cannot have one without the other, right? And that also is what, so, 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 so when folks begin to come into their awareness, right? Uh, particularly young liberals and, and maybe perhaps some older ones, right? But, but uh, begin to really or truly comprehend what change actually means. That means whatever you have, you probably have to give some of that up at the very least, right? If we want change to be possible, right? Particularly in this current structural order. And that's why you get, and that's why oftentimes uh, uh, there's an impasse that's reached between the white liberal 
and 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 particularly um, more marginalized populations, right? Because when the rubber hits the road, now, 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 your children's schooling opportunities are going to be disrupted, right? For the greater cause. Uh oh, right. So, so, so I will say with that in mind, right? We do have a racial wealth gap scenario that is gaining uh, lots of traction in the literature, right? So. Uh, 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 I know uh, some numbers reported a few years ago, right? On average, Black America, right? Black Americans have about $1,700 liquid in the bank account. They have said they have revised those numbers recently, and it's now uh, somewhat, uh, it's around or a little under 4,000, right? The average white family has $110,000 in the bank account. That's the average white family. White America owns 90% of the, of, of, of the wealth, 90%. Right, so uh, 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 we have in terms of um, right, Black America, right, approximately around two and a half percent of total wealth in the United States of America. And by 2053, right, Black Amer right now, right now, Black America has 50 to 60 percent of Black America has zero dollars in wealth. Right now, 2020, by 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 2053, we are predicted to have zero dollars in wealth across all of black America, right? I, I gotta do it like this so I can really underscore, right, the urgency that we're in right now, right? And, and we would think it would be, be met, right? And in some instances it is, right? But this has been going on for some time. Our, so what was the purpose of black America here in the United States of America? We are a bottom caste, right? And within a capitalistic system, right? At the end of the day, whether it's black American or not, somebody gotta be the bottom. And it's not until we begin to have those kind of conversations, right, that change is actually possible. When I'm in Wilmington, Delaware, keep in mind one of the richest cities in the world, right, not to mention it has some of the poorest uh, black neighborhoods in the world too, right? The wealth and the poverty, the, the, the poverty is breathtaking, right? And, and keep in mind, slavery ended in Wilmington in 1860, one year before, one year before uh, 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 the, the Civil War, right? And or, and or one third of all black, one third of all uh, incarcerated people uh, during the period of slavery uh, 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 were free black men, right? And black slaves accounted for about one third of the total US population. I mean, uh, excuse me, of Delaware's population, right? So we have an entrenched, structural violence complex in Delaware, and in particular, Wilmington. In my study in Wilmington, particularly in the East Side and South Ridge neighborhoods, right, we found two-thirds of our sample 500 surveys uh, of Black men and women between the ages of 18 and 35. We found two-thirds to be unemployed, and nearly 70% of the men in that sample unemployed, right? Most low-income Black communities, in most low-income Black communities throughout the country, 50%, at least 50% of the Black men are unemployed. Don't know if you've been inside a neighborhood where half the men's in that neighborhood or community are not working. It's a site I promise you, you will never forget. Right, so, so, so we found those and much more, right? 100% of all black boys in Southbridge dropping out of high school. 100%, nobody losing any sleep. This is going on all over the country for generations. This is, this, is, this is necessary to take place, 
so that you and I and our children can enjoy their privilege. Matter of fact, if we didn't have 100% of black boys dropping out of high school or 70% in the Southridge and 70% and, and, and of the men unemployed in communities like the East Side and Southridge, right? You and I could not have this opportunity right now. Yeah, that's, that's how, right. That's how ruthless, right, this structural context is. Yeah, the book, uh, the book documents the you know, whether it's explicit or implicit uh, actions, you know, all the way from the New Deal and the labor movement. I mean, really the turn of the 19th into the 20th century in housing. You know, we have redlining documented, but we also have things happening on the ground uh, in labor. And, uh, you know, perhaps uh, Professor Levy can uh, pick out some examples that are uh, that are most illustrative of this, because not only is it happening the, 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 the system perpetuates it, so it keeps it this way. It keep, you know, it, it doesn't allow, the, there's, not only is it happening and is it horrible, there's no escape. Um, but yeah, there's, I think, some of the housing, uh, some of the housing situations were uh, uh, very poignant to me, but uh, I'll leave it to uh, Professor Levy. Well, actually, let me just go back to the labor part, because I think it's, the, it's, it's, it's less known. I mean, there's so much known now about housing. Yeah. Um, you know, going well beyond just redlining. You know, if anyone who's read the book Evicted, you know, you look at a city like Milwaukee where people are paying 80% of their income for rent, you begin to realize what's the chances of, of, of uh, attaining equality without someone giving up something. But let me go back to labor. So one of the things I found, for example, in Baltimore, if we look at the unions that were part of the old CIO labor movement, so that's the movement that wasn't the old AFL unions that didn't accept black members. These were unions that had accepted black, uh, black unions. Um, and the steel workers were a primary example of this. And, you know, the Bethlehem Steel attracted both blacks who already lived in Maryland, but also tens of thousands of more to, 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 to migrate up. Um, and then in those steel unions, you know, time and time again, blacks were on the bottom of the workforce. They were in the least skilled jobs. And when opportunities came up for people to become, say, um, more highly skilled in the factory or being foremen or being shop stewards, they were routinely denied that, that possibility. And then what happens in the 1970s and 1980s is these uh, various industries from steel to auto to rubber on down the line begin to deindustrialize. And the unions argue they're not racist, they're just fighting for seniority rights. And the hard thing is seniority is an important part of the labor movement, but it's a, it's a classic example of taking advantage of your privilege. Uh, and so if we were to go to communities like Wilmington and Baltimore and, and, and look at the you know, just extraordinary unemployment levels that exist in those cities today, you know, it, is, it is rooted on the fact that blacks were at the bottom, then we industrialized, they're deindustrialized. And at the same time, you know, we, did, we uh, have a tax structure that increasingly puts a higher, higher, higher burden on, on working class people. Um, you know, I, I'm waiting for half the states to go belly up because they, they depend upon things like casino taxes and tobacco taxes, these so-called sin taxes. Well, meanwhile, they probably haven't budged their income tax rate in, I don't know, except downward since the New Deal. So that just, that just you know, and, and then there are cuts to the services and cuts to the education. It, it just becomes this uh, snowball that's, that's gaining momentum downhill. So it's, it's absolutely not surprising at all that you see this kind of eruption on the streets. Um, just you know, one last thing, I don't, don't want to talk much more, but you, know, you mentioned housing. Um, you know, a lot of people are out there, 
you know, predicting the next thing that's going to happen is there's going to be a wave of evictions and going to be a wave of, of people, even uh, black middle class who own homes are going to lose their homes. Uh, and, you know, we've seen a massive bailout of the airline industries, of casinos, Disneyland, and, and corporate executives taking, taking uh, bonuses. Um, we haven't heard any talk about uh, what's going to happen to those people once they start losing their homes. It's interesting, Rob, you call this the, and, 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 and Dr. Levy, you, you know, you call this episode in your book, The Great Uprising, right? And I often refer to this period as the great sealing off, right, of um, a whole class of folk from, from permanently, if you will, from, from, from accessing, you know, real opportunity, right? So we see a kind of permanent, uh, 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 you know, interestingly enough, um, Derek Bell, going back to him in CRT, he talks about the permanence of racism. That's his language, the permanence of it, right? How, 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 how inherent, right, this, this, this notion of racism is. But right now, I think we see the kind of permanence, if you will, um, the sealing off of, of marginalized people. Yeah, I can say our, uh, our, we do have the casinos, but our big scam here is the tax havens. You know, we, we, allow, people, we allow people to launder money through here. So that's our, you know, everybody's got, that's our scam. Um, and then, of course, uh, as as you said, um, you know, everybody gets austerity. So, you know, there's cuts. You know, the, the education's bad. The public transportation's bad. But the one the, 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 the one public service that the affluent still need is the police. Uh, they never see austerity. They never see cuts. In fact, you know, they'll, the, the spending, you know, just goes up, 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 up and up until it's such a huge percentage of every city's budget. Um, and then when you look at these figures, you're like, oh, well that, I see what's happening now. I mean, it, it just, it, you know, it shows you this, this situation. Um, I, I want to touch on something, uh, that we're seeing again, and, and I assume we'll see, you know, over and over again, um, the, the outside agitators, uh, uh, myth, um, the the best example of this, I think, um, was documented in the book with H. Rap Brown in in Cambridge, um, but you know, obviously, we're seeing it uh, once again. Uh, I find it difficult to understand how, when there's thousands and tens of thousands of people in every city across the country, who's the outside agitator? Like, who's going where to do what? Since everybody seems to be doing it, um, but in any case, um, uh, perhaps Professor Levy can sort of talk about that. Um, how that's utilized by reactionaries to basically delegitimize um, the, you know, the, the final outbreak of, of anger and, and, and in the street. Um, but yeah, I, I hadn't I hadn't actually known this, that story of, of a trap Brown and how he got basically pinned for what was really the second uh, uprising in Cambridge. Um, but he was basically pinned that way as a, quote, outside agitator. So let's just start with the context. I mean, so, you know, we, we need to remember that virtually when the civil rights movement began to emerge in the South, you know, the refrain of the most racist kind of policeman was always, well, everything was fine here till these Northern outside agitators came in. And even Emmett Till's lynching was justified that he was a boy from Chicago who didn't know the mores, you know, as if, as if he did something that deserved a lynching. But so what's more surprising then is not surprising at all that when the, when the, uh, revolts took place in the 60s. People were looking, well, why did these take place? Well, we know in J. Edgar Hoover's mind that, well, it had to be communists. There had to be some type of radicals. That just that just fit with the consensus thinking of the 1960s. 
And we need to remember how many people thought that, that uh, we were all enjoying this affluence, um, that American democracy worked. Yeah, there were flaws, but there was this pluralistic society and everyone had a voice. Um, and so the only explanation that a lot of scholars from you could, could come up with is that somehow it had to be some outside group. But then there were some very specific people who kept coming up both among scholars, but the media. And the most, two most famous were probably Stokely Carmichael and H. Rapp Brown, uh, who were accused uh, by a variety of figures of sparking one revolt after another, first in 67 and again in 68. I actually found the uh, accusation of Carmichael in Baltimore the most interesting. So Carmichael actually was in Baltimore about a week before the uprising took place following Martin Luther King's assassination. So local police, probably fed by J. Edgar Hoover, who were following Carmichael, uh, claimed, well, Carmichael was in there organizing a riot. Well, to do that, Carmichael would have had to know that King was going to get shot the next week and 150 people were going to be, sorry, 150 cities were going to, were, were going to erupt. But what was even more interesting, the FBI knew, or at least local police force knew, that Carmichael was in Baltimore that week before to arrange his wedding, his wedding with his soon-to-be wife. He was, he was essentially wedding shopping, not organizing a rally, but kind of in the, in the vein of never releasing exculpatory evidence and never releasing any evidence to the contrary, they kept up this refrain. And the press just magnified it. One thing I've been a little happy with, with the recent covers, coverage, is it seems like that charge that outside agitators are causing the current protest has, has been diminished. I mean, if, if, if Donald Trump didn't blow that yesterday when he's claiming some 73-year-old man uh, must be an anti-fascist and he, he like had blood rushing out of his hand as, as, as a way to, as, as a way to provoke this, you know, that, that it just made a ring hollow. Now he's got his core who's going to believe that. Um, you know, yeah. They believe COVID was invented by Bill Gates. So, you know, I can't help that. Yeah. It, it is helpful, I guess, because when the, the one difference I, I do see from the history till now, as you point out is, uh, you know, in the, in the history, it's been leveled upon people. You know, H. Rap Brown did make a, a very incendiary speech earlier in the evening uh, before the fire in Cambridge. But, you know, these are people we can point to specific things. You know, Carmichael was in Baltimore. We don't really say why, but now it's it's a lot more opaque. It's like Antifa. Is it a thing? Um, you know, this guy is a peace activist. What's his you know, it's 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 a lot more uh, transparent, at least to me. Um, I hope that that I mean, maybe it's a subtle it's a subtle thing you're describing, but I hope that that's that that's true. I mean, I, I don't want to jump in, but the the other way I'm seeing outsiders though that I think progressives on the left have to take seriously is the possibility of of right wing adjunct uh, provocateurs who are or also remembering that both in the '60s and today we're seeing that the police are often the ones who are committing the violence. I mean, the most the most recent example of this came when we found the Minneapolis police were slashing people's tires and blame wow, and wow. blaming it on the on on, on the protesters wow. um you know thank god for cell phones so it's all you know but i don't know how widespread that is because maybe i'm on the facebook and twitter feeds where i see that they're not showing that on fox news right. and they're certainly not reporting that on the drudge report you know so i think the media is very powerful in terms of i mean we know that right and there are few um well-resourced major media platforms and they get to control and dominate the narrative. Um, and we also see that with the protests as well, right? And I can say in Wilmington, right? So my guys, you know, I have a 
a, a movement, a research activist movement, though. All right, there's probably a hundred plus people in it at this point. Um, you know, we do all of these studies on the ground and, 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 and we do a lot of action organizing on the ground. And we were actually, so a week ago, a little over a week ago, when the uprising took place in Wilmington, many of my guys were on the ground in Wilmington. Um, and we were like on a conference call, right? Different parts of the city, checking in, making sure people were safe from the ground um, and guided. But I, I would say, you know, from the perspective of folk in Wilmington, um, definitely um, agent provocateurs is, is the language being used a lot now in the streets, um, you know, to be aware, to be conscious. Um, I did you know, an interview with a reporter not too long ago and we kind of talked about this, right? Because um, he was uh, uh, hearing lots of rumors of bricks and pipes and stashed all around Wilmington, right? And then some of, and then right after he said that, interestingly enough, right, a number, um, a number of my guys began see, sending in photo pics of these stashes of bricks and pipes to me, to my phone, right? And I'm like, wow, this, and I, and I have been seeing it around the country as well, right? But I didn't see the Wilmington iteration yet. And I'm like, wow, this is strange. So at the very least, I would say people on the ground are concluding at least a few different things, right? You have variation within the uprising, right? You have a, vari you have a variety, you have various competing forces on both, on all sides too. Right, so for a more conservative right wing to more liberal, uh, 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 radical, you know, left kinds of stuff going on, right? Uh, uh, one thing that can be concluded though, right, is, I mean, there's a number of things that can be concluded, but one thing that can be concluded from the community's perspective, right, is that the rage and the anger is genuine and palpable inside young, inside the neighborhoods where young black men and women uh, reside. You know, and, and, and even if they are uh, provoking the riots, which a lot of folk believe is happening. I mean, inside poor black neighborhoods, right? They, they believe something is going on, right? But them breaking those windows, that is genuine in terms of demonstrating their rage, their contempt, you know what I'm saying? Um, 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 for what it's worth, rioting and looting language of the unheard according to MLK, right? But the rioting and language in terms of how we frame it with our theory, right, is a site of resilience, is a site of resistance. It does make sense. Not saying if it's good or bad. What I am saying is it makes sense. It's a form of coping. It's a form of exacting, right, a, a, a kind of retribution, if you will, right? So the demonstration of the anger is a way of preserving dignity. Many scholars write about that for it as well as Robin Kelly, Victor Rios, a number of folk, right? Um, but it's a way of maintaining resilience. Yeah, this is probably a good time for uh, Professor Levy to elaborate on the concept of the commodity versus the communal riot. Um, I think that's a, a very important demarcation to make. And also, perhaps you can um, speak about how we, although we use the terms rebellion, uprising, riot sort of interchangeably in our speech, we, we should be very careful about how we define them and, and, and what they mean and how, you know, maybe they don't necessarily mean, uh, they don't climb to the level of the definition of maybe revolt or revolution. Um, but we do need to be careful to make these distinctions as we come to the realization and, and, and understand what's happening. So uh, perhaps uh, the commodity versus communal is important. So the commodity versus communal is kind of a, I hate to be a little bit in the weeds, historiographical debate amongst historians and scholars of, of, of rebellions, but uh, when the rebellion started, or the, or the revolt started in the 1960s, and actually for individual, I kind of like the term revolt uh, and uprising broadly. Um, but 
uh, people were looking back at the race riots of the earlier eras, particularly 1918, 1919, 1920. And the argument is those were communal, meaning they were interpersonal. And what they really were was pogroms, more, more often than not, in which whites attacked blacks and blacks attacked back. You know, Claude McKay saying, if I must die, let me die fighting back, was really grew out of those revolts or the, of, of 1918, 1919. So that when the uprising started in the 1960s, first in Watts and then most most famously in Newark and Detroit, there was a good deal of property destruction. And um, the argument was amongst a bunch of scholars is they were going after commodities, goods, television, liquor, liquor, <laughs> easy, uh, well, what's non-durable goods was the, ar was, was, was the <laughs> argument. Um, but then I said, well, let's just do a case study of three cities, three communities. You know, I didn't cherry pick them. I did Cambridge, I did Baltimore, and I did York, Pennsylvania. Baltimore had a lot of commodity riding. There was a lot of looting that took place, okay? Um, uh, and I, I agree with Dr. Payne. There was a sense of resilience, a sense of kind of, this is my space of freedom right here. Um, but then they were all, from what I see, is kind of relatively undeveloped understandings of why that was taking place. But more importantly, then I looked at Cambridge and York, and there was absolutely virtually no looting in either community. In, in Cambridge, there was a fire that got out of control because the white fire force and the white police force refused to put it, put it out. And they basically said, let your section of the town burn down. And then they blamed blacks for burning it down. It was just pure retribution. And in York, which takes place a year later, and I knew nothing about the York, York revolt, it, it, it becomes interesting almost 30 years later because the mayor of York gets charged with murder in the middle of that revolt uh, for killing a black woman who just happened to be up visiting her relatives in the middle of the revolt. And what, what, what happened there was there was a fight that took place between a white and a black gang. And what changed it from a fight into a revolt is when the police refused to arrest the white man who went beyond using fists and knives and shot um, one, one of the black activists. And at that point, when whites came into the black community, blacks were defending their community. And when blacks went into the white community, whites were shooting them. The big difference was the police were participating uh, against the blacks, putting down the, the, at the same time, they were participating with the whites to either arm <laughs> or shoot the blacks. Um, wow. And then there's this period of cover up that takes place for virtually 30 years. I mean, wow. Charlie Robertson's a, a beat cop in 69 and you're, you know, in the 1990s, he becomes mayor. Everyone in the town knew that he probably had participated in this. Uh, yet no one spoke it. It was like, okay, let's just put that behind us. Yeah, I mean, it's, it sounds like the, in the town, it was well known that um, the police were supplying the arsenal for the white gangs. Yeah, so, or at least, yeah, and in rural Pennsylvania, people have a lot of guns, but they're helping them out and getting even more and saying, we're you know, encouraging them to arm themselves. And uh, this guy, Messersmith, whose house they shot from, I mean, he just, he was like a private army, and it's probably a lot worse now than it was 50 years ago. So there was that interpersonal violence. There's actually been very little of that, as far as I can tell. We need to remember that most of the violence of the revolts of the 60s were by authorities against blacks. I mean, you look at Newark, and let's say 50-odd people were shot. Probably 53 of them were going to be shot by policemen or, or, or National Guardsmen, and we can't even document the other two. And the myth of the sniper was so overblown. Uh, in Baltimore, they talked about snipers 
Um, I tracked down one guy in Baltimore who was accused and convicted of murder. There were six people who killed. It was a total accident. He threw a Molotov cocktail in a building um, and someone else who had gone into that building seeking refuge died in that fire. No one knew he was there and the cocktail would have gone out if someone else hadn't thrown more gasoline on that cocktail. But it wasn't, we had this image of these crazy radicals going out looking for white guys to shoot and that wasn't it at all, you know. Um, you know, it's one of the reasons I think people should think about less the looting, the fire, is sometimes people live in those buildings or fires spread. And, and uh, you know, people in the 60s tried to protect their property by, owing, by, you know, by putting sole or black owned business. And sometimes the fires spread. Uh, so I have a little trouble with kind of the after the fact justification that, well, uh, blacks didn't own those buildings. There were, there were black property owners and business owners too who were hurt. And um, that's just a strategic mistake for me though. Yes, I, I think I we, we, we've had that conversation here. Well, in in Wilmington, in the 68 uprising in Wilmington, there were we there still people who will tell you stories about the snipers. Um, and of course, there's I don't think there's much evidence, very scant evidence of it. Um, but we're having that argument now with the, uh, the the uprising of 10 days ago, the Saturday one that that did end in, you know, uh, vandalism and, and, and some looting. Um so you know somebody says well why did they do this why did they do it in this neighborhood or do it to that business and not that business it's i'm agnostic on it sort of sort of as you said i i i i can see it as a strategic thing that maybe if you thought it out you would do that but but i you know that's that's sort of a silly to get down that rabbit hole just seems silly uh i'm not in a position to judge any of that i don't think um so i just leave it there usually (laughs) dr Payne. I hear that, brother. I hear that. So, yeah. I would say one distinguishing factor, at least, I, I, you know, obviously I'm a, I'm a social psychologist and sociologist and, and street ethnographer, so, but I'm not in the story. But um, so one factor that I think distinguishes, you know, the, the, the uprisings and revolts uh, during the 60s um, and, and at least what happened, what's happening more recently, you do see a lot of targeting. I, I, I guess it depends on what community. But Wilmington's a good example. You do see a lot of rioting and looting more so in downtown sections, right? In whiter, wealthier neighborhoods and communities. I, w- I, you know, I don't think folk are rioting and looting in the suburbs or going to residential homes. And that, that hasn't happened yet. There's been some protests, though, with regard to that. Um, but, but, but for the most part, the rioting and the looting, at least on TV, I think there needs to be a systematic analysis of these 140 and 50 cities presently to really see what happened where. But it looks like, and definitely in Wilmington, it wasn't in black neighborhoods. They were not black businesses. <laughs> Yo, this is downtown East Side. This is the corporate white sector of Wilmington that got um, thrashed, right? I'm not saying that there might have not been a black owned business someplace within that mix, but that is predominantly a white, wealthy business community. And you saw scores of that throughout the country. So something is different. Um, the targeting of the rioting and looting. Um, is different. Now, not to say that folks sat around and had some calculated plan. I, I think, you know, I agree with Dr. Levy, you know, it's important to really characterize and put everything in a proper frame. So, right, and I think there's variability, there's variation, you have different groups, different competing forces. But if we're talking about those young folk that are out there that are just running around and, and angry, no, it's not as calculated. It still may be in some way now, 
a spiritual or holy act, right? From the perspective of the folk in the community or a righteous or justified act. But it's not necessarily thought out um, in terms of a step-by-step, blow-by-blow kind of way. Um, it's very organic. The rage is very organic. Um, but in any event, I just think it's important to underscore white business was affected during this recent uprising throughout the country. Yeah, and, and I mean, you saw it six days later uh, when we went out again uh, on Friday evening um, that the, the authorities had, you know, time to think about it. And, and, and the, the, the massive police presence down, down our, uh, it's Market Street, you know, I guess the English would call it, you know, the high street, the, the commercial district, um, was, uh, was just walled off in a block or two blocks in each direction for 12 blocks. And it was like, no one's going in there. Uh, can can yeah. I just comment on that for a second? Sure. So I, I, th- I think that's really interesting. So two, two things. There's a really good historian named Thomas Sugru, um, who had a comment probably on Twitter originally making the point that um, one of the differences may be that commercial spaces are more integrated or desegregated today than they were in the sex days. So that, you know, we need to remember people were still fighting over, in some ways, the application of the right to, to go eat at a lunch counter. And blacks were, li- were, 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 shop- were not shopping yet necessarily at the downtown store. So just where people are. But the second point you make is one that I kind of then fired back to Tom, which was um, the National Guard and police learned to very quickly cordon off uh, business sections and, com- and particularly government buildings. I think the burning of the police station in Minneapolis was a clear example of targeting and not as much of that took place in the 60s, uh, but partly because authorities learned that. Now, authorities forget... Forget the lessons too. My guess is probably the National <laughs> Guard has not been has not been studying the history of riots. You know that's uh, but they learned it pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, yes. And you know and 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 uh, you know I think Washington D.C. becomes somewhat interesting because you know we need to remember in in uh, in '68 you didn't have a black mayor who then was going to write Black Lives Matter on the street uh, next to the Capitol where 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 uh, uh, National Guard units had been had, had been located. Um, but Trump, you know, Trump had gotten his way. He would have cleared out the entire city. Um, he would have been worse than Mayor Daley, who said, yeah. you know, shoot to shoot to uh, maim looters and kill arsonists. Yeah, you know, and and won several reelections after that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I. Speaking of that, I won't. I won't harp on it but you know back in the 60s you know law and order sort of won the political argument um but the other side of that argument the kerner commission uh was sort of i don't want to say lost to history but it was certainly relegated in historical memory um folks you mentioned the national guard i was very interested in uh, gelson i guess general gelson was the maryland uh, national guard he seemed to be um at least keen enough or savvy enough to sort of in his mind, kind of put together what was happening and try to uh, sort of accommodate things or be a little more flexible. Uh, but a lot of that stuff has been completely lost, um, lost to people's, at least pe- regular people's memory. Could you uh, talk a little bit about um, the Kerner Commission, um, uh, how it was brought together by Johnson and what it found and sort of how it was ignored? <laughs> so in following the revolts of the summer of 67, kind of right in its immediate aftermath, uh, uh, Johnson creates this commission to study the causes of the civil civil disorders, they call them in the, in, in the book. Um, 
And probably the most important member of it was John Lindsay, who was the mayor of New York, who was maybe one of the last moderate Republicans. Um, but uh, Kerner was also a Republican governor from Illinois, I believe. But it was an assortment of people. And more importantly, they had a team of sociologists working for them. And the Kerner Commission concluded uh, that uh, the revolts were caused by social and economic conditions of the ghetto, which had been created by white society. And in some ways, that was a very radical statement at the time. Uh, probably if you were to go through not the more radical uh, demands today, but the reform demands for police, you could take them right out of the Kerner Commission. They have a whole chapter on the need of police reform. Um, one of the problems is the Kerner Commission issues its report. I don't know how much traction it would have gotten anyway. Um, <laughs> but Johnson, Johnson was already uh, out the door, a crushed person. He made yeah. the decision before King was assassinated that he was going to step aside. And then when the King revolts took place, it just became easy target practice uh, for conservatives. Now, Robert F. Kennedy, it is argued, entered the race in 68 because Johnson was not getting behind it. Um, and the only other thing I would add is there was an internal report by members of that Kerner Commission. Maybe they were the founders of critical race theory, some of them, um, called Harvest of American Racism that went much farther than the Kerner Commission did, um. demanding structural change um, and, you know, beyond just more great society stuff. And that report and the people who put it together were just crushed internally. Um, possibly, probably for political reasons, the Kerner Commission was going to be difficult enough to sell to Johnson. Harvest of American Racism was, wasn't going to get anywhere within the Johnson administration. Um, but those people went on to become some of the most famous scholars of race in the, in the latter part of the 20, in the 20th century, because, um, you know, they pointed out not only that there were these conditions, but when they, they, they saw the, the, the international dimension of it too. It wasn't just by coincidence that a Vietnam war was taking place, that race was an international construct. Uh, and I think we still need to remember that today. I mean, there is, um, I, I, I probably become one of these COVID junkies who kind of checks to Johns Hopkins site every day. It's kind of scary. Some people check their stocks. I check that. And what's taking place in the South of the, of the world right now is terrifying. I mean, and, and that in places like Brazil, 30, 40,000 people reportedly are becoming infected every day. And from what I read the day, they're on the brink of a military takeover. Um, and yeah, we're we we follow Brazil. We uh, the show has followed sort of the saga of the arrest of Lula and the rise of Bolsonaro. Um, so the fact that Bolsonaro is reacting in a reactionary sort of way. I mean, he's like uh, people, you know, say he's the, the southern hemisphere's Trump, um, probably worse because he was actually rather than being sort of just a TV star, he was a a member of the military junta that ran the country um so you know it's a little bit worse um but yeah his handling of it and and the situation in brazil is very very bad very bad and you know and, and so we go back to the spending the austerity yes we, we spend on police prisons and a military budget that's never known any bounds except for you know what for since the beginning of the cold war since the, since the beginning of world war ii at least well, I, I want to read um, the the epigraph on the conclusion, I think, um, kind of goes back to how I was feeling when I was reading this. And as I said, uh, 
you know, I, I did have to stop a few times based on the situation I've been in personally. Uh, but I thought that this was interesting. This was uh, a man, Kenneth Clark, um, giving testimony to the Kerner Commission in 1967. I read the report of the 1919 riot in Chicago. And it is if I was reading the report of the investigating committee of the Harlem riot in 35 or the report of the investigating committee of the Harlem riot in 43 or the report of the McCone Commission of the Watts riot. I must again in candor say to you members of this commission, it is a kind of Alice in Wonderland with the same moving pictures reshown over and over again, the same analysis, the same recommendations, and the same inaction. And it was just, it was very moving. And, and you know, we can change that. We don't, it does, there doesn't have to be the same analysis and inaction. But certainly it is very uh, poignant and, and moving that it is, it does appear to be the same picture show, um, uh, taking out some, you know, taking out, uh, you know, some pieces of it, um, you know, maybe the, 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 the white sort of, um, and I don't know what they I know this was one of the things that sort of kicked off the Cambridge um, riot. And actually it was, there was the same thing happened in Baltimore and to a lesser extent, uh, York was the, 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 the interpersonal crime. Uh, and you take out sort of the Vietnam aspect, but a lot of it's, you know, the same. Um, we don't have as much of a problem, as you said before, with um, desegregated accommodations necessarily. So we, we do have shopping districts that are shared and, and we don't have, uh, you know, a fire department like the one in, in Cambridge. But a lot of the things are the same. And, and I'm wondering what your, uh, what your reflection is uh, on that. Well, just in case listeners don't know who Kenneth Clark is. So Clark is the social psychologist who wrote the famous doll study that people often credit with helping to win at least the court to have a unanimous decision in Brown. And he wasn't a radical. So his wasn't just that these revolts were going to take place, but that, you know, here I'll testify to the, I'll testify to the commission, but um, all you have to do is take the old commission's report off the shelf. You know, we don't, we don't really need another commission right now. I mean, I think that's what I heard today is, you know, they're going to, Senate's going to form a commission on police reform. We don't really need another commission. Um, we, we, we know the causes of, and in many cases, we know at least some of the solutions. I, you know, I think the point about how systematic the solutions have to be, has to be, uh, has to be emphasized. Um, you know, I went back and, and, and read, uh, King's Where Do We Go From Here, which was published shortly after he died. And, you know, his point was society needed to be reborn. Mm. And he wasn't talking about just a hallelujah moment. Uh, he was really talking about a recreation of this, of the society from the, from the, from the bottom up. Um, and I think one of the problems is we've often de-radicalized King. So all we ever, school children ever hear about him is his I Have a Dream speech. Um, not recognizing that in the end of his life, he was talking about the triple evils of militarism, capitalism, now I'm forgetting the third, imperialism. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't think we need to go beyond that playbook. You know, that's, that's, a, it's, it's, let's, let's just, that's what we need to do is attack that triple structure. That's right. Professor Payne, uh, how about a final word for us? Yeah, if I can just quickly uh, uh, piggyback off of what Dr. Levy was saying really quickly. Um, when we look at our scholars, I think it's always important, and shoot ethnographers are really into this concept of reflexivity or researcher positionality, right? But, but now there's a time in the social science literature, particularly in ethnographic literature, where we're more closely looking at the scholar. 
right? Their racial, ethnic, and cultural background as a way to understand their assumptions and their arguments, right? Um, you would think that that should be something obvious or something we would be doing all along, um, but that's rarely done, right? Who you are, your racial, gendered, and class standpoint matters in terms of your perspective, right? With that in mind, um, 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 you know, when we look at Kenneth Clark, I've written a lot about him. I, um, and, and, and particularly as a doctoral student, I read a lot about him. I'm from Harlem originally, right? Uh, uh, um, Kenneth Clark definitely had Haru, which was a major community center uh, in Harlem. He also was very involved, like Dr. Levy said, with regards to Brown versus Board, particularly through those Dow studies, right? So like MLK, Kenneth Clark and his wife, Mamie Clark, right, were much more assimilated uh, for right or for wrong in their earlier years. Right, that's important, right? So when we look at the trajectory of a scholar and or scholarship, right? Much more assimilated, work closely with Jewish scholars um, early on who were looking at Jewish self-hatred, Kenneth Clark, now they helped him, right? Because in their mind, there was a lot of anti-Semitism in the country, particularly after World War I. Uh, most of the country, you know, hated Jews. And as a consequence, they internalized that hatred. We now call that internalized racism, but back then it was, uh, Jewish self-hatred, and then Black self-hatred. Kenneth Clark, working with Jewish scholars, other scholars, really gets underneath this notion of Black self-hatred, right? He supposedly provides empirical evidence of it uh, through these doll studies, right? And he uses those doll studies to help win Brown versus Board. Problem is this, he manufactures some of the results, right? Check out a book by Bill Cross, uh, Shades of Black, which comes out in the 1990s, right? So he ultimately argued that Black kids, for the most part, picked the white doll because they hate their black skin. And from that study of great, of school grade children, right, 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 he generalized to most black Americans in the country, including adults, that we, most of us, right, hate ourselves. And from that, those studies, right, you now have this narrative around hopelessness, low self-esteem, helplessness. That's, that's when the black community began to be described in that way. Right. I'm probably the only scholar in real time that's examining large numbers of poor black populations and I'm testing for esteem because of what Kenneth Clark did. Right. And I can't find it. Right. I mean, in fact, when Newsweek comes in to do a study on the violence in Wilmington, they interview us. One of the things that they find is they find high levels of psychological and social well-being. The reporter couldn't. She was like, that can't be true. They're poor. They must hate themselves. Like Kenneth Clark said. Right. And the few of us who are studying this in the country and I'm studying it by collecting large community samples, right? They, they all supported our conclusions. We think that's a golden find. Poor black people don't hate themselves. In fact, they love themselves. Their families and their communities. Now, why is this important, right? This is why we uh, 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 integrated the schools, right? So the argument, right, by, by Thurgood Marshall, Lewis Redding in Delaware was that if white children, if black children have the opportunity to sit next to white children, and somehow the white children who love themselves and have high self-esteem, right, would superimpose that esteem in these black bodies who inherently hate. Like this was, right, this infuriated black communities in the 1950s and 60s, right? This was, in fact, folk like Zora Neale Hurston, right, chewed Thurgood Marshall and folk like that out. How dare you describe black communities like that? You know, and, and keep in mind, this is just legal strategy. It's not that Lewis Redding and Thomas uh, and Thurgood Marshall actually believed that, right? But they just thought they had the resource. Now, now, I'm saying all this to say this, right? Kenneth Clark was much more assimilated and would make arguments like that, even though it infuriated the black community and nobody believed it in the black community. We just wanted our schools and our community to be well-resourced more than we wanted to go to school with white children.
right? That's really what was, to this day, Wilmington, Delaware, original Brown versus Board City, to this day, they have great issues with Lewis Shredding and or this argument about the doll studies, right? To the, and, and try and walk around in Wilmington, Delaware and talk about uh, DSEG is a good thing. All right, now, then you might get run out of town, particularly by those progressives, white and black ones, right? Because it obviously did not benefit Wilmington, Delaware. With that in mind, Kenneth Clark becomes more radicalized towards the latter part of his career. Uh-oh, he becomes much more structural. 1965, he drops Dark Ghetto. Classic. He's still kind of arguing some of that self-hatred stuff in there, right? But he's much more structural, right, in his analysis, right? And, he's, and, 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 and obviously MLK does the same thing. So they morph in a way that, 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 that brings greater awareness to these communities. I did not know that he wrote that um, in the Kerner Report, but I definitely want to check it out. Because um, 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 you have the Kerner Report, you also have the Morningham Report, right? It comes out in 1965. Speaks, you know, about the black family, black men, but it actually speaks to a lot of these same issues, minus the riots. It speaks to a lot of the social structural conditions. Yeah, well, I, I had I had a note jotted down, and obviously it's mentioned in in uh, Professor Levy's book, but that's a whole other avenue. I don't think we can even go. <laughs> we can we can, we can, we could talk about that for two hours. Yes, absolutely. Or All longer. of this stuff is fascinating, but um, yeah. but I just want to leave you with this. At the end of the day, right. Uh, the American story, right? Michelle Alexander says we're in a constant state of rebranding our racial caste system. Slavery, Jim Crow, right? Uh, uh, mass incarceration, et cetera, right? And it's the same story. It's the same script. Different actors, different actresses, depending on the, same, depending on the generation. Well, the book uh, by Peter B. Levy is The Great Uprising. Uh, I can tell you that uh, although I, I borrowed this from a friend who got it from the University of Delaware Library, I'll probably be purchasing it because um, it's, it's a really important historical uh, document uh, to sort of level set everybody about where the stuff is coming from today that you're looking at on your television uh, or on your internet. On your internet. And I want to thank uh, Professor Levy for joining us. Thank you. Great work. Thank you for having me. Oh, oh, it's been great. Phone's about to die, but thank you for having me. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, Professor Payne, thank you so much. And I, I'll, uh, there's a possibility of you and I run each, running into each other on the street pretty soon. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Let's do it. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Have a, have a great afternoon. Sweet. Great meeting you, Professor Payne. See you. Thank you. Uh, okay, great. Bye. Bye. Folks, that was very fun for me. I uh, hope you'll consider uh, Professor Levy's book, The Great Uprising. As I mentioned, Peter is very prolific. His other books, uh, of his other books, two seem uh, most relevant and useful at this point. One is an interesting biography of Spiro Agnew called Spiro Agnew, The Forgotten Americans and the Rise of the New Right. The other is The New Left and Labor in the 1960s. Uh, search for online bookstores uh, that are independent and will uh, deliver to you. There are tons of them. Support them now more than ever. Uh, interesting trivia on Agnew, as I was reading about him. He was the uh, county executive of Baltimore County for six years. Uh, he won uh, basically based on some of the rhetoric around some of these uprisings and, 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 and race relations. He was the governor of Maryland for two years, uh, and then he was the vice president, uh, and then uh, he was found guilty of crimes. Uh, so he had a, not, a very strange <clears throat> sort of career arc. Uh, but after he resigned and pled guilty to tax fraud, uh, he was also disbarred from the Maryland bar, uh, and he moved to Ocean City, Maryland, where he had a home and lived in 
obscurity. Um, he, he died of undiagnosed leukemia uh, in 96, I believe, and he was rushed to uh, Atlantic General Hospital where he died. Uh, and uh, we're trying to figure out whether there's some overlap because uh, Nurse Susan was an ER nurse at Atlantic General Hospital in and around that time. Um, so, of course, I asked her whether she was a ER nurse there or whether she remembered, and she has no idea. Um, but anyway, uh, there's a, there are a lot of um, sort of local, um, there's a lot of local information uh, because, again, um, <clears throat> Dr. Levy is uh, sort of an expert in, in that particular area uh, because he lives in Baltimore and he teaches at York. Um, so a lot of his scholarship and research um, has been not only in the 60s and 70s, uh, in politics and history, but also of that particular area, if that's something that you're you're into. Uh, I want to thank our colleague and friend, uh, Jordan Howell, for loaning me his copy of The Great Uprising. Um, Jordan, let me know when you want me to return it. Um, to learn more about Dr. Yasser Payne's fieldwork methodology, Street Par, go back in our catalog uh, to episode 54 of the Highlands Bunker podcast. Uh, speaking of which, please consider uh, a patronage to support our work. Tell your friends and family about us. Um, get the word out. Um, Carl and I do put quite a, a lot of work into these. Um, I hope it shows, um, but we definitely need that support. It's uh, patreon.com slash the Highlands Bunker. Subscribe, rate, and review in iTunes. We're there. Follow us on Twitter at Highlands Bunker. Uh, we're pushing, comrades. Um, the Legislative Black Caucus has rolled out changes in Dover. The Attorney, G Attorney General's Office has rolled out statements and, and proposals. Um, I consider these like the sticker price of a new car. This is where the negotiations begin. So keep organizing, keep participating, keep having difficult conversations, and above all else, stay in the street. Solidarity. Left is best. <laughs>